Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, an environmentalist makes the case for the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project, why it doesn't have to be either or when it comes to building pipelines and fighting climate change. We hear from filmmaker and producer Fulvia Cessary about his new documentary, 350 Days, a look at the darker side of the professional wrestling industry. Plus, a couple of different angles on the cannabis debate, new numbers out on exactly how much tax revenue governments are bringing in, also continued problems at the border for Canadians with past arrests and convictions. Well, here we are the day after what was a pretty big day, a pretty important day. With regard to a pretty big and a pretty important project, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. The federal finance minister was here in Calgary today uh, selling us, not necessarily on the merits of the project, which I guess maybe a lot of folks here are already sold on, but trying to sell us on the government's determination to get this built and how it all lines up with other government policy. Now, certainly the liberals are trying to thread a bit of a needle here that they are the party of balance, that they are the party that believes in uh, doing these projects, but doing them right, opening up new markets, but also doing so in an environmentally responsible way through a price on carbon, uh, through other pieces of legislation. And the Liberals also made it clear yesterday that whatever profits come from operating this pipeline or selling this pipeline, that that's going to be reinvested in so-called clean technology. Uh, so the Liberals think that they can walk this tightrope, and, and maybe they can. I, I think there is uh, certainly a lot of Canadians, a lot of Canadians who are maybe somewhat concerned about this project, concerned about climate change, uh, but are open to building this kind of infrastructure in the right way, recognizing that we're not going to get our fossil fuels anytime soon. There is a need for infrastructure to move these projects, and from Canada's perspective, a need to open up new markets. I was very intrigued by an op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail today from an environmentalist point of view as to why the Trans Mountain Pipeline is necessary, why the announcement yesterday was the right decision. And maybe it will surprise you as to who the author of this piece is. His name did come up a few times during the recent Alberta election campaign. Following the election, he resigned from the board of the Alberta Energy Regulator. The premier, the new premier, made it clear that had he not resigned, that he was going to be fired from that position. Uh, Ed Whittingham was portrayed as someone who is hostile to these kinds of projects, hostile to Alberta's interest. Yet here he is in the Globe and Mail defending the decision to approve the pipeline. So I wanted to explore this in more detail. Ed Whittingham joins us, co-founder of the Academy for uh, Sustainable Innovation, also former executive director of the Pembina Institute. Ed, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on the program. Uh, now, and, and you lay the reasons why you believe this is important, and, and it's, it's certainly, I think, in keeping with things you've said in the past, but you get the sense maybe that, that to some this might be a surprise, that, that here's Ed Whittingham and he's in favor of this project? Sure. Well, I think, Rob, you nailed it. It's, it's in keeping with everything I've said in the past. It's what I've said in the past. It's what I've thought. And it's a lesson. Don't believe everything you hear from a politician. So I felt the need to, especially in light of uh, how he's been portrayed uh, in the last few months, to to speak out on on this very important issue and and make my opinion clear. Right. So this isn't a, a new decision you breached. That uh, your support for the Trans Mountain project was was there previous previous to yesterday. Yeah, 
Yeah, huh? absolutely. I mean, all things considered, I think the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, is in Alberta's and Canada's best interests. And again, all things considered, I think yesterday Ottawa made the right decision to reapprove it. Now, so you acknowledge in the first paragraph of your piece here that, that yours may be a minority view within the environmental community. Uh, and why, why is that then? It, you know, it's mine may not. It, it is a minority uh, view in the environmental community, and particularly if if uh, you read who is is writing about the issue or who's getting the attention. I, I think that there is a lot of quiet support out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably won't hear about it. You know, being in the rational, pragmatic, pragmatic middle on issues these days feels like a, a really lonely place. I can and, imagine. Uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, people in industry don't wake up in the morning thinking of new and creative ways to destroy the environment, just like people in the environmental movement don't wake up thinking of new and creative ways to destroy jobs. But often, unfortunately, in this hyper-polarized environment, uh, we're in its portrayed that way. And so I'm trying to trying to bust through that myth. Right. Well, and I mean, how do we even define the environmental community or the environmental movement? Because certainly I think that there may be more vocal voices in the movement, but being vocal doesn't necessarily mean that, that you speak for a movement. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you define the community? Oh, it's, it's impossible to define. And so, uh, frankly, Rob, I don't try to define the community. Mm-hmm. Just like when, you know, folks have said to me, oh, well, in the environmental community, well, why don't you speak with one voice? Well, who is the environmental community? What is that voice? Just like I would never tell industry, hey, everyone, you have to speak with one voice because, you know, the energy industry uh, also is uh, is at times uh, sprawling and difficult to define. Yeah. Well, in terms of then what we would consider the environmental argument against this project, that developing a major new pipeline will allow for increased development in the oil sands, thus increasing our emissions, that's basically the case for why we, we shouldn't allow this. But what gets left out in that argument? Well, I think we need to look at the approval conditions around yesterday's decision. So, you know, we've got several things. One, the federal government has stated that it's it's committed to making sure that the carbon price in Alberta stays. And I know that's not the most popular thing in Alberta, and especially the last couple months. But, you know, let's face it, that uh, that it is uh, economists and, and CEOs agree it's one of the most effective tools we have out there for tackling climate change. And by effective, it's also one of the cheapest. It's the most cost efficient. And, uh, you know, carbon tax revenue is going to be recycled back into the province and the economy for, for transit projects, for rebates, for energy efficiency upgrades, um, and that creates jobs. And the, the other uh, two other conditions that we should really make note of is the 100 megaton oil sands emissions limit which gives the world certainty on the overall uh, climate footprint of the oil sands, that the Trudeau government has made it clear that it expects Alberta to fall through uh, and regulate that limit. And if not, then the feds are, are going to play that role. And, and I, I, as one who was involved in the discussions that uh, really put that idea on the political table, uh, I, I think it's important. And then the last one is, as you mentioned, the profits for the pipeline, the operating profits and from the eventual sale We'll go to reinvest in, in clean tech and clean energy, and I, I think that's critically important for Alberta. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the meaningful climate policy, I mean, you, you seem to be making the argument, I, I, it seems like a reasonable argument to me, that maybe it makes more sense to focus on consumption and demand than necessarily supply or how we move supplies. Is that how you see it? Oh, sure. You know, we, we, we need to focus up and down the life cycle 
of any hard hydrocarbon. You know, I, I'm going to be uh, completely clear that, you know, we, we need to decrease our dependency on hydrocarbons. There's still a role for them. Um, but uh, without question, we have to, as a world, uh, transition and decrease uh, our reliance on fossil fuels. It's a clear uh, cause of climate change. But in the short term, we can harness what we're doing with fossil fuels to drive down their intensity. But then, as I argue in this op-ed, you know, it's, if we're going to transition, it's really hard to do that when our economic backs are pinned up against the wall. Yeah. And I don't need to tell any Albertan, you know, what we're facing right now. It's, it's a tough time. We need to transition from a position of strength uh, rather than weakness. And without question, this pipeline is going to help strengthen our balance sheets. And we need financial health if we're going to move Alberta and Canada in the direction of cleaner a cleaner, a lower carbon economy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, because you talk about how, how the debate has shifted. And to a lot of people, Ed, it, it, it hasn't. That, you know, it was supposed to be a, a bit of a bargain with, uh, with environmentalists that, yes, we'll build this pipeline, but we'll also impose some meaningful climate policy. Uh, we're going to overhaul the review process, a tanker ban, etc. But it feels as though we, we didn't get that bargain and we didn't get that trade-off. But ha- do, you, do you get the sense, though, that, that there has been a shift in, in this conversation, in this debate? I think so. I don't think uh, Trans Mountain would have been approved the first time by the Trudeau government in late November 2016 had Alberta not stepped forward and committed to doing its fair share to tackle climate change and to try to decarbonize our economy and our industries. And, and you only have to look at what the Trudeau government said yesterday and uh, what the prime minister said back in November 2016 when he first approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline. He directly linked it to Alberta stepping up. So I know, you know, then we get uh, into the morass of the courts and everything slows down. But the reason that we're at this position of, you know, having a viable pipeline, having a government owning the pipeline and talking about how we can invest the proceeds, the profitable proceeds of an eventual sale of the pipeline is because we had Alberta step up in the first place on climate. And I think that's that's lost to the fray. So you you see it then, and others have portrayed it this way, maybe you don't see it the same way, but the, the contradiction or the paradox in having the House of Commons this week uh, pass this motion, speaking of a climate emergency, and then to have the government approve this project. I, frankly, I think, I think the two are compatible. So yes, we have a climate crisis that we need to act upon. And that's why Canada back in 2015 signed on to the Paris Accord that sets an ambitious target to, to maintain warming, to hold warming to two degrees in the world. And then a year later, the federal government and the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan at the time was an important component of this, put in place a national climate plan for how we're going to live up to that international obligation. And the 100 megaton oil sands emissions, emissions limits, the, the increased emissions real estate that we have uh, in the oil sands, um, is factored into that plan. So we can get to this reduction, even if we're having an increase uh, in oil sands emissions. And as I've argued economically, you know, we, we need, we need the, the, uh, the revenue and the economic benefit that's going to come from the pipeline in order to move us in the direction of that cleaner, lower carbon economy. All right. Well, I do urge people to read your piece. It is uh, up at theglobeandmail.com. Ed, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. It's been good talking to you. Hey, it's been fun. Thanks for having me on All the right, show. Take well. care. Uh, that is Ed Whittington. I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't sound like a radical. Doesn't sound like Sapporo Berman.
uh, Sabora yesterday was telling uh, opponents of the pipeline to warrior up. I don't know what that means. Uh, but Ed Whittingham says this was the right decision. He supports this pipeline. So I don't know. I, I'm a little confused. Uh, he is, uh, of course, former board member of the Alberta Energy Regulator, uh, former executive director of the Bemina Institute, also co-founder of the Academy for Sustainable Innovation. So that's the environmentalist argument for this pipeline, uh, that he supports other policies that the current federal government has implemented, that the previous provincial government implemented, likes the idea of using uh, profits or proceeds from this pipeline to uh, further invest in, in alternatives. And thinks, by and large, this helps get us to where we need to get. Gives us the economic flexibility to continue to make this transition. He says it gives us options, whereas our economic backs are pinned up against the wall. Then we have few. Three hundred and fifty days a year as a wrestler on the road. Maybe it's a sickness. Three hundred and fifty days a year. A lot of physical pain. A lot of loneliness. You have no home life whatsoever. Piper and me riding down the road, doing eight balls of cocaine. I'm sure it broke up marriages. How many guys uh, in the wrestling business have a family left when they're done? Most of them lose. Well, that's uh, from the trailer for a film called 350 Days. It's a documentary about the professional wrestling industry, and in particular looking back uh, at those days in the 70s, and in particular in the 80s, certainly when pro wrestling started to explode. And you're going to see a lot of very familiar faces in this film. For as much success as some of them achieved, and notoriety, 350 days a year, they were on the road. This becomes your life. This just isn't a job. This becomes your life. You're away from your family. You're on the road. You're doing show after show after show. And so as you get the sense from that clip, for a lot of them, you pass the time by hitting the bar, maybe using other substances. And perhaps that gets compounded by the fact that doing all of this day after day after day takes a physical toll on your body. So now the substances are there, not just because you're bored, but because you're in pain. And you can see why that leads to trouble or even tragedy in some cases. It's a hard business. As much as some of these individuals have uh, made quite a life for themselves, that's quite a price to pay. Uh, the film 350 Days is screening tonight in Calgary at the Globe Cinema. I understand uh, Brett the Hitman Hart, Calgary's own, who features in this film. He's going to be on hand for the screening tonight. But joining us to talk more about the film, which you can read more about, by the way, 350daysthemovie.com is Fulvio Cesare. He's the uh, filmmaker behind this movie, the uh, director, producer. Fulvio, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. It's my pleasure, Rod. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for having me. Well, and welcome to Calgary. And I understand you were getting a white hat today. Is that right? I'm so excited. I, I had no idea that uh, that even existed or what that was. Uh, but a friend of mine told me. I did some research, and I'm I'm incredibly <laughs> humbled. And uh, thank you. I mean, yeah, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, congrats on that. Let's talk about the film, which, of course, congrats on the film as well. But I, I understand that you know before you you got into this project that you, like you didn't grow up as a wrestling fan, did you? Uh, no. Uh, it's actually uh, very funny because I, I did wrestle in high school, and um, I remember as a kid. I mean, you know, I grew up in Montreal, so I, you know, I vaguely remember when I was really, really young. People like Bruno San Martino and 
you know, names like Killer Kowalski, but I, I just, you know, it just wasn't my thing. And in high school, you know, I was busy, you know, chasing women and smoking pot because that's what you do when you're <laughs> in high school. And, uh, but I would come home and my dad would be watching wrestling. He'd be watching Hulk Hogan, and I'm like, Dad, what, what, what are you doing? Like, you, you know, this isn't this, this isn't real, right? And he's yeah. giving me these dirty looks, and so no, I uh, I just wasn't a wrestling fan. Just something that really escaped me. And this project kind of fell in my lap because I was helping a friend of mine on another project, and that didn't go anywhere. So he he had this other idea, and he was very uh, friendly with some pretty well-known uh, wrestlers like Jimmy Snuka and uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine. And I said, wow, you know, if you have access to these kind of guys, uh, you might be onto something here. So why don't you let me direct it? And and that's how it started. I I, I strictly came on board as a filmmaker because I'm, I'm an actor. That's what I've been doing for the last 36 years now. And uh, so not as a wrestling fan. And I think that really helped out because I'm not, you know, what they call a mark, you know, a super right. fan. Exactly. Of so I'm, I strictly was just fascinated by these characters and I really wanted to know, you know, what their lives were like, you know, because this is about life on the road. And this is, um, it's about what was known as the territory days, all before prior to 1990s, before Vince McMahon started buying up all the promotions. Mm-hmm. And so at one time, there was something like, I think, 32, 33 different promotions all across um, the U.S. and Canada. And now it's basically, you know, WWE. But there has been quite the resurgence. Uh, You've got Ring of Honor now. You've got uh, New Japan. And the most recent is uh, All Elite Wrestling, which is really changing things. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be the territory days again. But, um, you know, it's... It was my duty to tell these guys stories, and uh, I, I think I, I accomplished that. These these wrestlers were just so fascinating. They had such a rich history in life, and they were so open and candid, and absolutely nothing was off the table. Uh, there was no agenda. There was no WWE bashing or anything like that. You know, what was it like for you on the road during those days, and what was it? Well, it was cocaine it was adultery it was steroids it was uh getting into fights with fans uh having your car destroyed uh <laughs> getting shot at uh I, you know i mean it's just it was just crazy crazy stories and um i was just i was just blown away by how candid and honest they were especially especially brett but brett is really our um our our star Although, you know, I interviewed 72 people in total. Wow. Uh, 30, 38 made the cut. Uh, but uh, Brett definitely stands out. And then I've got people like Ox Baker, if you remember him. He's a really famous heel back in the 60s and 70s. Um, he's our comic relief. He's just so great in the movie. <laughs> uh, Greg Valentine is unbelievable. Yeah, the Hammer. We've got, uh, the Hammer. We, we've got Tito Santana. Uh, Mr. Wonderful Paul Warrendorf, Ted DiBiase, Million Dollar Man. Uh, it, it, if you grew up watching wrestling back in the 80s, 70s, uh, you're going to remember all of these guys. And some that, you know, we, we had one that was, a, he was the oldest living wrestler at the time. He was 99 years old. So he was wrestling back in the 40s. Wow. Yeah. His name was Angelo Savoldi, and um, he actually he talks about in in our movie about how wrestlers have gimmicks. 
And he was talking about one specific wrestler. And he said, you know, George, you, you need to come up with uh, with some kind of gimmick. Everybody has a gimmick in wrestling. You, you should do that. So this guy, George, comes back to him, you know, the following days. He, he's like, um, Angelo, I, I've decided. I, I know what my gimmick's going to be. I'm going to call myself Gorgeous George. And he wound up being one of the most famous wrestlers of all time. Man. And that was his gimmick. He was uh, So we have a whole little thing on Gorgeous George and... Uh, I, I think I think people are going to really enjoy the movie if if you're a big wrestling fan. Yeah, and it's such an interesting look at at what it's like for these guys because you see them on television or maybe you get a chance to see them uh, come to your town and they seem like such larger than life figures and and certainly a lot of them started to achieve some level of fame but there was still the grind right the grind was still there for these guys even if they had some some stature. Well, the, the, that's why it's called 350 days. They would wrestle 350 times a year. Because they were only getting twenty five, thirty dollars a, a match, and they were constantly on the road. So they they would get up, they, they'd go to the gym, uh, they would wrestle, they would party at night. Then they'd have to take their their drugs to you know downers to get to sleep, speed in the morning to get back to the gym. Then they get in the car, they drive two hundred, three hundred miles to the next thing, and that's what they did all the time. And the toll, you know, the mental, the toll on the psyche, the the body, the relationships, uh, I mean, you name it. It's And that's the other thing I'd like to bring up, that it's, yes, pretty much everybody is, is a wrestler, but I wouldn't say this is a movie about wrestling. It's, a, it's a, a human interest story. It could be about traveling salesmen. It could be plumbers, you know, what they go through on the road. It just happens to be, you know, pretty famous... Uh, you know, pop culture icons from the 70s and 80s. But it, it speaks to that, that competition that drives not just these guys, but drives a lot of people in life where you're busting your butt every day to try to get ahead. And even once you get to that spot, you're still busting your butt every day because you're afraid that, that someone's going to come along and take it from you. And that, that's kind of what it seems like these guys were going through constantly. It, it, it was. And, and, you know, that's why they traveled so much. Like, they, they would be... Uh, like a champion in one territory, they go to the the next territory. No one would have heard about them, and so they compete against their champion. And then, you know, if they win in that territory, then all of a sudden they're the newly crowned champion, and that's a, you know another uh, notch on their belt, so to speak. But that's where the the riots would come in. Like there's a whole story about how when uh, superstar Billy Graham beat Bruno San Martino for the heavyweight title, he was uh, a punched, kick, hit with chairs. Um, uh, they threw urine on him. I mean, you know, he had to use his belt like a like a helicopter blade just to try to get out of the the the, the arena. You know, his car was destroyed. It, just people believed it so much. You know, there, there was no TV back then. There was no internet. I mean, not TV, but the, no uh, internet and satellite TV and stuff like that. So it was mostly newspaper articles, magazines. Um, like even George Steele would would say how. Um, you know, he was a teacher, and he would wrestle yeah. all the time, but in different territories. And then, like about twice a year, his students would see somebody, someone that looks like him, on magazine covers, and they, you know, confront him about that. Say, "Hey, that's you. You're George Animal's <laughs> deal, right?" And he's like, "Really? Do you think I'm that ugly?" <laughs> right. And they're like, "What? Uh, oh, oh, oh!" You know, they're all afraid. So. You know, but but that was you could do that back then because you know it just wasn't that widely spread. You know, news wise. Mm-hmm. Was I saw an interview recently. One of the the big stars in the '90s who um, 
Ted Turner managed to lure away from from Vince McMahon. And he talked about that decision. And sure, there was a lot of money on the table, but he talked about just the offer of being able to work 100 or 150 days a year. I mean, uh, for those guys, that that was unheard of. Did did the business start to change in the 90s? Is is it anything like that today, like it was in the 70s and 80s? No. Um, I mean, even the local guys, you know, the the indie guys, they they, they don't wrestle that much. They, they, They can't. It's just... I, you know, if anything, I think people learned their lesson. Um, and then you have people like uh, Chris Jericho, who is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say he's in the mold of, of Bret Hart. He's a technician. He's he's in such great shape. He's he's one of those high flying, uh, you know, technical wrestlers, and, and that just takes a toll on your body. You can't wrestle like that, you know, three hundred fifty times a, a, a year anymore. You just the body just doesn't take it. So. These indie guys are not doing that. Um, so yeah, I don't. I don't know anybody really wrestling 150 times a year. Actually, I shouldn't say that. There's one guy that I know uh, from New Jersey, uh, Andrew um, Anderson, the reinforcer. He's a Facebook friend, and he's practically wrestling like every day. He's living that 350 days, and I don't know how he does it, <laughs> but um, it's it's rare. Uh, um, but. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. It, things, yes, have changed quite a bit, but AEW is trying to make a big difference now. I just read yesterday, and I don't know how this is going to go over and how they're going to really do it, but uh, they're saying that there's going to be health uh, insurance for the wrestlers. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is uh, something that um, Chris Jericho uh, announced, and, you know, and he's he's an employee and he's talking how it's you know it's a it's a business and how it's run and they have health benefits and uh, I think they're going to be doing something like two hours live uh, a, a week. Um, so it's very interesting what, what they're going to do. I'm curious as to how that business model is going to work. Yeah, no kidding. And it's interesting when you talk about Bratz, and of course he's such an icon here in Calgary. But you know, just you know, to see how he's been through it all right and and he's seen it all and then he's had those injuries and he's dealt with all of that through his career but just the fact that he seems like he's still got it together that he's in relative good health i know he had a, a cancer scare a few years ago but um you know it's when you look at all of the uh you know the the untimely deaths of some of these guys the health problems some of these guys have had uh the bread almost feels kind of like one of the lucky ones uh, he is, and he'll tell you. I mean, he he says in the in the documentary that you know he's he's one of wrestling's train wrecks because he's had so many injuries, and you know he's still a young guy. You know, he's in his sixties, so that's pretty yeah. pretty young. Uh, but his body has gone through quite a bit, and so yeah, I, I would say he's one of the lucky ones because on a on a more morbid note, um, you know, of the seventy two that I've interviewed. Uh, or of the 38 that actually made it into the the movie, we're approaching like 20 people that have passed already. There's yeah, 16 right. for sure, and um, three that I've heard of are in really bad shape. And, and this is, it took me six years to, to finish this movie, almost day to day. And, uh, you know, in six years, 20 people practically dropping. I mean, that's like unheard of. I mean, you, you don't even see football players, uh, you know, passing at that rate. No. No, there's certainly that, that tragic side of it. Um, absolutely. The film is called 350 Days. It's screening tonight uh, at the Globe, and uh, Bret Hart is going to be there. Much more, 350daysthemovie.com. Fulvia, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this.
Rob, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you you doing that. Thanks. All right. Thanks again. Fulvio Cesare, uh, documentary filmmaker, uh, the producer, director of 350 Days. Yeah, I can't even imagine that life. And I remember watching the, um, the ESPN documentary on Ric Flair. And, you know, and he talks about living that life. Uh, and he was maybe a little more excessive than most. And, and how people like that were even just functioning from day to day, let alone performing every single day. Part of the uh, argument for legalizing cannabis was that we would be bringing this black market above board, that there was then revenue potential for governments by legalizing and taxing the sale of this product. And certainly we could look at the example of the U.S. states that had done so. Uh, Colorado, for example, has raised a billion dollars in cannabis taxes since legalization, which they brought in in uh, 2014. So what was reasonable for governments in Canada to expect? And I think that, you know, that, that question shapes how we, we design these policies in the first place, doesn't it? If we're driven by a desire for revenues, that might lead governments to set those tax rates higher, which, of course, though, could have the unintended consequence of keeping more of it in the black market. And then maybe you don't get anywhere near the revenue you thought you would. A lower tax rate might eliminate more of the black market, might not bring in as, as much in revenue, though. So numbers released today by Statistics Canada show that uh, through the end of March, so from October when legalization occurred to the end of March, Ottawa and the provinces brought in about $186 million from various taxes on cannabis. Now, $186 million is not an insignificant amount of money, but maybe it seems a little underwhelming in terms of what was perhaps hoped for or expected as a result of legalization. So most of that went to the provinces, $132 million. Uh, the federal treasury took in $55 million. So what do we make of these numbers? And how much uh, of government policy is shaped by, or should be shaped by, a desire to bring in revenue? Joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome the program, Michael Armstrong, Associate Professor of Operations at the Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Dr. Armstrong, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Uh, what do you make of this number? Does that seem low to you, first of all? Um, the uh, numbers, which are uh, statistics Canada estimates, not necessarily official government totals. Right. Um, yeah, I think they're right in the in the ballpark. Uh, and you, uh, in your doctor introduction, summarize things pretty well. It's setting the tax level is a trade-off. Uh, the main trade-off is you know, do you, how much revenue do you want to raise versus how much do you want to compete with the black market, uh, which of course uh, doesn't pay taxes. Right. And in terms of, of legalization, I mean, I, I look at more as just in terms of kind of a personal freedom sort of issue. I mean, if there's additional government revenue to be had, well, I, I suppose that's a positive offshoot of that. But was, was the, the quest for revenue, was that a big driver of, of legalization, do you think? I think the, uh, I mean, it depends who you ask and which government official you're, you're thinking about, but mm -hmm. I think the... Uh, I think the main driver was thinking in terms of the, uh, the freedom, the uh, you know, the question of why are we throwing people in jail for what is basically having a good time or making right. themselves silly, depending on how you look at. Uh, but then that was kind of backed up by, hey, by the way, we could raise some tax revenues. So you kind of have the moral argument leading the uh, leading the conversation, but kind of as the closing clincher, you can say, hey, you know, there's a potential for tax revenue here. So I think it was it was both working. Uh, in combination. 
It, yeah, I, I, probably. I, I think, too, there, there's been an argument that at the very least, maybe then, that, that revenue should be there to offset the costs that are there. And, and I guess initially, and in moving to legalization, there may be some cost involved to governments. I suppose there's also perhaps some cost savings involved in, in ending prohibition. Does it seem to you that at the very least, then, what's coming in is, is more than, than what we're having to spend on setting up legalization? Um, I think you can find broad agreement on in the big principles as you said the, the big issue or big uh, uh, contradictions are in the details mm-hmm. so uh, when you're looking at okay what are the cost of legalization it probably depends um, for example impaired driving okay we have to deal with impaired driving which means we have to have ways to test for it uh, there's going to be court cases but we were already dealing with impaired driving uh, prior to legalization um, likewise, uh, okay, we're going to have problems with uh, shutting down dispensaries. Well, we were already shutting down dispensaries before legalization. So many of the costs, uh, I think, were are largely continuing what was already there, uh, which, again, was part of the argument in favor of legalization, is that, you know, there's so many Canadians already using it. Uh, we're already paying many of the costs. We might as well legalize it. At least we can gain some of the benefits. So while the cities are, uh, for example, are complaining they want more, a uh, bigger share of the tax revenues, um, they actually do have a point because they, they have to now deal with some extra issues like uh, licensing. Uh, they now have to issue licenses for stores. It means they have to inspect them. Um, but perhaps not as many new costs uh, as you might think. It's interesting. I mentioned Colorado uh, in the introduction. In Colorado, maybe perhaps exceeded their expectations when it came to to tax revenue. California, on the other hand, has been uh, the exact opposite. The story last month that uh, California has uh, revised uh, downward dramatically its uh, tax revenue projection. So uh, how do we explain those very different circumstances? Uh, well, the taxes in uh, both those states and, you know, here in Canada, in terms of Canadian provinces, uh, are largely driven by how much legal sales uh, of cannabis you get, and whether you're successful or not on raising revenue, therefore depends on whether you're successful or not in gaining more legal sales. So California uh, suffered from uh, two main problems in that respect. The biggest one is a lot of their towns uh, and municipalities opted out. Uh, the state gave, gave the local governments the option to ban uh, legal cannabis stores, and about 80% of the uh, cities and towns decided to do that. Um, but, of course, banning legal cannabis doesn't mean there's no cannabis. It just means there's no legal cannabis. So there's a big chunk of the California market where there's no legal cannabis sold, which means no tax revenue. And then in the areas where it was legal, um, a lot of those areas added their own taxes. You might have a municipal tax, a city tax, plus a state tax, and that made it very difficult for the uh, legal retailers to compete on price against the illegal ones. And, of course, there were lots of legal illegal ones because the black market there was already well established. Colorado took uh, a more liberal approach, uh, not so many restrictions. They weren't opting out anywhere. So there was a lot more legal sales and, therefore, a lot more tax revenue raised. We're uh, seeing some of the same issues in Canada, uh, although here it's not so much based on... Uh, uh, the taxes and the uh, opting in and opting out as much as just on, on store counts. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the provinces that had the largest per capita sales and therefore the largest per capita tax revenues, uh, those are provinces that had a lot of stores per capita. So they made the, the taxes available. Or sorry, they made the product available. So more sta- stores, more sales, more taxes. 
uh, Alberta is actually one of the leaders on that. Uh, you had, the, I think, the largest, uh, one of the largest numbers of stores per capita, and so you had uh, much higher sales. Uh, some of the Atlantic provinces also did very well. Uh, they have smaller uh, populations, but uh, relatively large numbers of stores per person. Um, so they also got bigger shares of the market going to legal retailers rather than illegal ones, and, and therefore generate more tax. You look at the other end of the scale, uh, Ontario, uh, where I live, uh, up until April 1st, we had no stores. We only had the online sales. And because cannabis consumers prefer shopping in-store, that meant we had relatively low uh, legal sales per capita. Quebec had stores, but they kept the numbers down. Uh, they only had a dozen stores serving their large population. They also had below average share of the market converting over to the legal side. So does that suggest then that, that whatever desire there is to generate revenue through cannabis legalization, that maybe governments need to be patient, that perhaps the focus right out of the gate should be, let's try to eliminate the black market as much as possible in two or three years down the road. It might actually be easier to inch those tax rates up uh, for, for the purposes of generating more revenue. I think that's a, that's a very sensible approach. Uh, you've got uh, this new industry, or rather this new entrant, which we, we call the legal cannabis industry, uh, but it's not going up uh, starting from scratch. It's facing a very well-established black market across the country. So you have to, uh, I think, if you want to achieve the objective, the policy objective of taking away as much of the black market as possible, uh, you've got to support the legal industry. So um, keep the tax rates initially relatively low, make sure there's lots of stores available as supplies grow, have more stores available. Uh, look at how you calculate the tax. So, for example, the, the uh, excise tax that the federal government and provincial governments charge uh, on dry cannabis is, depending on the province, is set at either a dollar per gram or 10% of wholesale value, whichever is higher. Well, that makes it difficult to offer a value-priced product uh, for the really price-conscious consumers. So a uh, dollar a gram minimum is not too bad if it's a premium product selling at 20 bucks a gram. Uh, it's noticeable if you're selling a, a kind of a midline product at $10 a gram. That makes it really hard to sell a $5 a gram product, which is where you need to be to compete really head-to-head with the black market. Uh, you can't sell for $5 when a dollar is going to excise tax and another uh, you know, 50 cents or so going to other sales taxes, GST and such. Yeah. So I think the federal government... Uh, should uh, fine-tune its tax system, uh, make it a little simpler, maybe just make it a flat 10%, so that when you do have these uh, value price, kind of a no-name uh, joints, for example, uh, it would be practical for retailers to sell them at a, a lower price. Some important points. Professor Armstrong, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for the insight, and thanks for making some time for us here. My pleasure. All right, take care. Michael Armstrong, Associate Professor of the Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Uh, His thoughts then on that balance the governments need to try to strike right out of the gate when it comes to legalization. And maybe we missed the mark a little bit in Canada. Or perhaps at least Alberta did a better job than other provinces. Try to make it as widely available as you can as quickly as possible. The more legal stores you have the more likely it is you're going to phase out the black market. But that also means trying to be cautious uh, when it comes to taxes right out of the gate, too. You know, it's been about half a year or so since Canada has legalized. Obviously, many U.S. states have legalized, continue to legalize. 
But that doesn't mean that the border issues have gone away and that people are still encountering problems. Here's a story from Global News Today about how a weed conviction at 18 got a man banned at the U.S. border 37 years later. So it tells the story of uh, what this uh, gentleman went through back in 1982 as a young man. It all ended at a conditional discharge. And that's where things stood for 37 years until a few weeks ago, the, pre, uh, the Peace Bridge border crossing on the Niagara River. This guy now in his mid-50s across the U.S. border many times. But this time, the border guard took longer than usual. Faced a short interrogation. Said, have you ever been arrested? I said, no. He said, are you sure? I said, no. Says, you can't lie to me. Says, I never never even thought of that time when I was 18 years old, 37 years ago. Never even crossed my mind until he started pushing and pushing it. He said, you've been denied entry. You're a criminal for cannabis possession. Was photographed, fingerprinted, and banned from the United States for life. For a 37-year-old possession conviction. How common is this? And are these old records now? Or is it easier for authorities to access these? Are they being digitized now? Now, joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome the program, Len Saunders. Uh, he's an immigration lawyer based in Washington State, focuses on a lot of these issues more at BlaineImmigration.com. Len, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like quite a crazy story. I mean, it's almost a conviction that this guy forgot about almost four decades ago, but it's still, as far as uh, border officials are concerned, very relevant, isn't it? Well, absolutely, and, and so many people think it's not a conviction because they weren't arrested. They were given uh, a fine or issued a penalty, mm-hmm. but for U.S. immigration purposes, they look at that as an actual arrest and a conviction. And so if, you know, for this guy, it sounds as though it hadn't been an issue before, and suddenly it was. Do we, do we have any understanding of how that kind of a situation can arise, where people can go years and years without any problems until suddenly one day they do? Well, I think what's happening is either either people aren't being run thoroughly by the Americans when they come to the border, and when they finally do after many years uh, through a more of a thorough background check, it's coming up. Or I think what's really happening is a lot of these old records, whether it's from the Calgary Courthouse or Edmonton Courthouse or Vancouver, north of where I practice, I think they're being digitized. And the Americans now have access to that, and so that's why these old convictions are popping up on the uh, American databases. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's, it's funny because they were asking him the question, but they already knew the answer, right? So, Well, I tell people that, you know, right. if, they, if they ask you the question, they know the answer. They're, they just want to know what you say. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and maybe he was lying. I, I mean, that would be, I think, at 18, something you would still remember. But I guess it comes down to maybe an interpretation of what it means to be arrested or what it means to be convicted but i guess i I don't know is the advice that maybe you shouldn't lie well no this is my typical old marijuana conviction case someone who had happened to them in the 70s or 80s and they've been going across the border for 30 or 40 years hundreds or thousands of times and all of a sudden it pops up on the databases and the person's shocked that now they have to file a waiver just to come to the country to vacation or go shopping it's ridiculous 
Yeah, and I maybe there was an assumption, I, perhaps, Lynn, that with legalization there would be a more of a relaxed view on this. But you know, the, as far as the U.S. government's concerned, not, nothing's really changed, has it? Absolutely, the, the laws have not changed at all. I, I'm not going to say they're being more diligent or less diligent. It's just the same, mm-hmm. but they are focusing a little different than what they used to, because they can't, you know, deny entry to your typical Canadian who now legally uses cannabis. So it is a slight change in focus on who they're denied entry to. Well, are they more likely to ask, have you ever been arrested? Or is the question ever, have you ever used cannabis? Um, The use, yes, I'm still seeing that. And I have seen some individuals who have been denied for use prior to legalization. I have seen these old convictions come up where they ask if you've ever been arrested but they're also asking the business travelers Uh, that seems to be a big focus on people whether they're investing or selling their services or selling goods to a u.s cannabis client that seems to be a big focus lately too now for people who do have these convictions in their past even if they were discharges or fines is there anything they can do to either have those records erased or expunged, or if the Americans have flagged it, is there any kind of recourse, any kind of an appeal process? Well, if it's already been seen, then you need a waiver. If it hasn't come up, the worst thing you can do is apply for a pardon. I know that the Canadian government has offered free pardons to Canadians with old marijuana possession convictions and i've said absolutely not because if it's not on the databases once you get a pardon it then goes on to the databases and now the americans can see it the canadian government has said no they can't i dispute that i go into the local port of entry in northern washington state frequently and i'm told by the officers they can see a pardon despite the canadian government saying no so i believe them not the canadian government so I tell clients, if this hasn't come up, mm-hmm. it may come up at some point, but the worst thing you can do is apply for a pardon, because now it says on the Canadian databases, this person has a pardon for cannabis. Well. It's horrible. <laughs> that is unfortunate. Uh, there is the waiver process, then, as it applies to, to the U.S. and the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency. It's not cheap to apply for a waiver. It is a lengthy process, but that is one option available, as you say. Well, exactly. So you have two options. One is just to stop traveling to the U.S., or if you want to apply for a waiver, they cost $585 U.S. payable when you go either to Calgary Airport or Sweetgrass, Montana, to do the application. That's on top of legal fees. If you want to hire an attorney like myself, you won't get a permanent waiver. They're issued anywhere from one to five years. Most people get like a one, then a three, then a five. So for me, it's wonderful. It's, it's a, it creates a client for life, yeah. but for individuals, it's burdensome and it's costly, and it, it's something that they don't think that they should get for something that happened so many years ago, and that's so minor given that it's legal in Canada and in many states. And even for that waiver, you're, you're, you're paying to apply. Your, your application might be rejected, right? Absolutely. There's no guarantee, but as long as it's over five years ago, that's kind of the bright line test for waiver applications. As long as your conviction is more than five years old, that shows rehabilitation. And most of these are not from the 90s or 2000s. They're from the 70s and 80s, your typical cannabis possession conviction. Yeah. Now, as we get into the uh, summer months, and I know a lot of Canadians will will still, I mean, despite this all, we'll still be looking at uh, taking trips down to the U.S., 
Are, are we seeing delays, Len? I mean, we've heard stories about uh, a lot of resources being moved to, to the southern border, away from the northern border. Is that is that still the case? Well, I'm not sure about Sweetgrass or at uh, Calgary Airport, but definitely in northern Washington State, south of Vancouver, many officers have been uh, sent to the southern border right now just voluntarily. But if, if it slows down the amount of officers who are volunteering to go to the southern border, they will be forced down there. So it has created some wait times, and it's come at the worst time, which is the summertime. Send them down there in the fall or winter, not at the start of the busy season, right at the beginning of summer. Well, and yeah, what about where you are? If someone's in uh, the lower mainland of BC and they're maybe looking to, to pop down into Washington, uh, are you likely to more encounter more delays at, at the big border crossing at the Peace Arch, or might you be better off uh, taking the trip into Blaine there? Well, most most people come through Peace Arch, which is just a few blocks north of my office, and those waits every day are typically one to two hours, even on a weekday in the middle of summer, and they're getting worse. You know, Canada long weekends up in a couple of weeks, it's probably going to be a three or four hour wait just to come over the border. Yeah. Well, yeah, Blaine is where they I'm thinking of, I guess that's uh, Sumas is, is the one that's over a little bit, right? So, yeah, Sumas, those ones are a little a little quieter, but, you know, it takes half an hour to an hour to drive out there. So yeah. by the time you drive out <laughs> there and wait, it's going to take you the same amount of time. All right. Well, uh, much more, as mentioned. Uh, folks can find you on the web, BlaineImmigration.com. Len, appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Have a good night. Thank All you. All right, you too. There you go. Len Saunders, uh, who uh, practices law in Washington State, as he says, uh, pretty close to where the Peace Arch is. Well, so I guess you got a few there, right? you got the Peace Arch is uh, the main one. You're driving down from Vancouver into the U.S. Uh, there's the other one that's uh, a little bit over. I think that's Highway 15. Is that the Sumas one? I remember, I remember being in Abbotsford and was surprised. You mean, like, it's right there. It's right there. There's hardly any drive at all. Uh, there was a story recently about the guy, too, who run these, the, uh, what is it, the Smuggler's Inn in Blaine, Washington, and he got himself into uh, a bit of hot water. But, yeah, it's that, uh, that road that runs right along the border. We're essentially on one side of the street. It's like Zero Ave, isn't it? One side of the street is BC. The other side of the street is Washington State. And at least on the cannabis issue, it's, it is somewhat ironic because B.C., it's legal. Washington State, it's legal. But that line in between and those people working on that line in between, they take a very different view of things. So it's something to be aware of. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.